Welcome to Battle Rhythm, a podcast dedicated to security and defense issues from a Canadian and international perspective. I'm Steve Sadman. I hold the Patterson Chair in International Affairs at Carleton University. I'm also Director of the Canadian Defense and Security Network. Battle Rhythm is a part of the Canadian Defense and Security Network's podcast network, available on Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and all the usual places to get your podcasts. Please join us every two weeks for our new episodes of Battle Rhythm, and also check out the other podcasts in our network. Uh, you can find them, again, on our website or at the CDSN Podcast Network on your favorite podcast provider. And before we start, we should acknowledge that our podcast is produced at Carleton University, which is located in unceded Algonquin Territory, which is home to the Anishinaabe Nation. Thank you. Welcome back to Battle Rhythm, Lena. It's always a pleasure to talk to you about all things Canadian defense and security. How are you doing? I'm well, Steve. How are you? I'm doing pretty well. We are both caught up in the Mandalorian, so we won't talk about that. Instead, we've got a, a variety of issues to t discuss. The first one interested you is the decision by the Pope to essentially disavow the doctrine of discovery. Can you tell us a little bit about this and why you were why you got interested in this particular issue that came up in the past couple of weeks? Well, my interest in this doctrine of uh, this discovery doctrine, I think, went back when the Pope came to Canada to visit last year, and there was a lot of um, discussion amongst the Indigenous community about having to repeal or to have the Vatican speak up against what um, is the doctrine of discovery. And so I did a bit of uh, reading, a little bit of research uh, back in the when the Pope came to visit and found out that this doctrine of discovery pretty much said that when the Europeans came over to the Americas, that they would become ownership and sovereignty and have sovereignty over the land that they quote unquote discovered because it was undiscovered, so to speak. And so they've used this doctrine to essentially take over all the lands that were previously inhabited and, and uh, gave them allowances to, to enable them to, to engage in all the atrocities that they did to capture this, this land. So it was interesting that there was no mention during the papal visit and with the visit that our representatives, that uh, Indigenous representatives from Canada, when they went over to the Vatican, there was no mention of it. Then suddenly it sort of came out of the blue last week that the Vatican released a statement saying that the uh, papal bulls or decrees such as the Doctrine of Discovery, quote, did not adequately reflect the equal dignity and rights of Indigenous peoples, end quote, um, and that it was not consistent with the Catholic faith. So it was interesting that it has come up, and I think maybe in the, the spirit of Easter, perhaps, that this is this has come out, but it's been lovely change of events, and I really hope that it will help with reconciliation and, and healing amongst uh, the Indigenous in, in the Americas. Yeah. So this was definitely something that had been demanded. And I'm not exactly sure if this goes as far as, as the indigenous communities wanted, but neither of us are lawyers, so we can't speak mm -hmm. to the legal ramifications. But given that this is sort of a doctrine that legitimized um, the settling of North America and beyond, it I guess it has some potential legal ramifications since it's been used to justify the taking of lands i i don't expect the lands to be reversed and and for the indigenous peoples to to 
own all the lands uh, that that were taken from them. But I, I do understand how this is a chance for them to to engage in some healing. To engage in some healing, I don't some want reconciliation. to speak for the community. Yeah. yeah, I can't. I can't speak for them either. But for for them to be able to say that you know there was theft and the doctrine that was used to legitimize it is no longer legitimate, that gives them even better arguments in courts to get compensation. It gives them better standing when dealing with various institutions. And this is part of the residential schools mm-hmm. issue. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it makes sense. And I'm glad that, that that this happened. I don't, again, I don't know if it's gone far enough and what they have to do next. Uh, I still think that that the, the indigenous people are looking for more action on the part of the Catholic Church. Well, the fact that you and I are both like we're not lawyers. Um, my understanding is that it is more of a again like an act of reconciliation and and an effort to admit wrongs that have been done in the past. I don't know whether like what ramifications it has on land ownership here in Canada, um, but from my understanding that this doctrine has actually been embedded in the law in the U.S. So having the Vatican now repeal this uh, discovery doctrine, there might actually be some, you know, legal precedent that might be established at some point in the in the states. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Again, speaking out of turn, just speaking as someone who has been a casual observer and uh, of this whole situation, I find it really important to to take a look to see, you know, what the ramifications are, you know, in in the years to come. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I, I think so. And I think, you know, this is an important, you know, discussion to be had, you know, not just on, you know, podcasts like this, but really to uh, have a broader discussion, particularly, you know, in schools, to understand that things are, we are trying to understand the the impact that this has had on the Indigenous peoples of, of the Americas, and that it does require people to pay attention and to move forward with some of the the requests and efforts for reconciliation. And I think, um, you know, the statement from the Vatican is a a small step towards that. And again, not speaking as someone from the community, but as someone who, you know, I see myself as an ally to to the Indigenous people of of Canada. Uh, I'd like to to see this to continue to move forward. No, I think that makes a, a great deal of sense. I guess the second issue we wanted to talk about today. Yeah, the women returning from Syria. A second issue, again, I guess reconciliation or or coming to grips with our, our recent past and distant past is a theme of today's uh, podcast, because one of the other issues is what are we going to do with the people that went to join ISIS, uh, particularly the women and children who may have not gone there to engage in terrorism, but to be with their spouses and be with their fathers. Mm-hmm. And so the latest story is is bringing women back from Syria. Um, this, again, was some, an issue that caught your eye. So what is it that, that you found to be interesting about it? What I found interesting about it is um, I saw it from the perspective, there was a lot of discussion early on uh, before the women arrived back to Canada with their children is around, you know, children that were Canadian citizens and what citizenship mean. And, you know, being children as well, you know, they didn't ask for this. They didn't ask to be brought over to be part of this, you know, whatever it is that, you know, ISIS was trying to uh, accomplish. And because they weren't asked to do this. And so what does that mean for for children who are Canadian? And for women that are Canadian, is the proposition to bring the children back and not the, the mothers? Or, you know, what happens when they 
do repatriate the children and, and their mothers. So that whole family dynamics and, and what that means for children growing up is was the, the piece that's always sort of intrigued me a little, you know, given my background in, in child development and whatnot. So it was interesting to, to read this week that there were four women that were brought back to Canada with along with 10 children. And that's sort of, you know, that, that sense. And then the, the women being, uh, three of the women being being arrested in the, the RCMP seeking a, a peace bond and what that may mean to, I guess, our, our understanding of citizenship and, and you know, that whole process. My understanding also is that there was a, a number of women and children who were identified to be brought back, but didn't show up for their flight, which I thought was, was interesting as well. Yeah, this provides all kinds of difficult trade-offs because we are responsible, Canada is responsible for citizens when they're abroad, and that responsibility does end when they engage in behavior that is problematic. And we have kids who are Canadians, essentially, who are abroad that mm-hmm. didn't, didn't choose this, so how do we deal with that? So the question, of course, is, is how serious is the crime of joining a, a terrorist group? And the answer is it's quite serious, but did yes. they join because they wanted to be active members and engage in terrorist activities? Is it that they wanted to be with their families, the kids? They have no agent, real agency in this, so that's a little more no. straightforward. So I think I think it makes sense to bring the try to bring these folks back. And the question then becomes, how do we treat them? And it does make sense that someone might have to be exposed to legal procedures because they. Mm-hmm. went abroad to join a terrorist group but it doesn't mean that we have to necessarily throw the entire book at them we have to i think the i think justice should always have discretion which is that we should take into consideration the circumstances and the severity and joining isis is severe providing them you know if you're if you're a spouse going to facilitate your 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 spouse's travel so that they can engage in terrorist activities that's a bad thing and one should potentially be punished for it but we also have to think of the kids uh, and and how do we treat them. And so I think we have to be careful about this. I don't think every person who has engaged in this kind of sympathy with ISIS is going to be a terrorist threat, but some of them may be. So that beca- that requires then RCMP to monitor these people to you know to make sure that mm-hmm. those who are most sympathetic and may want to engage in violence do so. One of the reasons why some folks join. You know, these endeavors, whether it was going to Afghanistan in the 1980s or going to Bosnia in the 1990s or going to the Ukraine in 2022-2023 is to learn skills and get better at war so you can bring those skills home. So one of the things we're going to have to think seriously about is whether the folks who went to join the Ukrainian military, were they of pure of heart? Mm-hmm. Were they good people just right. trying to fight against authoritarianism? Or were they some of the white supremacists who are trying to pick up a skill set that mm-hmm. has been a challenge facing the Canadian forces? This is one way to get that those skills without joining the Canadian forces, right? Is to go and join somebody else's violent endeavor. And I don't want to say that Everybody who's done that is a proto-Nazi. I don't want to accuse the Ukrainians of of being Nazis. That's something that other folks in the in the sphere in the you know, out there are doing. But this is not just an Islamist thing where we think that only people who are Muslim who go abroad to fight are then security risks when they come back home. It's going to be clear to me anyway that those who fought for the Ukrainians are also going to be security risks that we will have to take seriously. And if we don't take seriously, that suggests something about the Islamophobia in our justice system and our policing enforcement, as opposed to taking seriously other threats that we face that have actually been more harmful to Canadians the past 10 years. We 
Now, we certainly have more white supremacist violence. We've had Islamist violence in Canada and in the United States. So I think there's a broader issue here of how do you treat the people who leave Canada fighting somebody else's wars and come back, of which this is a part. And now it may be that this is more complicated because there's the, it's a family enterprise, which has not been the case of Ukraine. So we have to take seriously the condition of the kids again. We have to think about how much agency these women had to say they don't have any agency, but they may not have full agency. We have to think, you know, Mm -hmm. we have to, I think there requires to be investigations to figure out what these people were thinking, why they do what they did, and how do we deal with the the families. Okay, that's a lot to unpack. So go back. this. Okay, so historically, has this ever happened before? Because it seems I again, new to this area, seems like it's a fairly new phenomenon where it's like a, it's a family enterprise that families have gone over. But in previous international conflicts, has it ever happened? Like in in Bosnia or Afghanistan, where, you know, whole families have been relocated and Canada has been faced with this, this phenomenon of having to repatriate members of families that have joined terrorist organizations. Like, is this new? Is it new to repatriate set families from conflicts like this? Yes. Like at, to this, at, I mean, to this extent. Well, again, this is a small, small, small scale thing. So have we done this before? I don't know. Yeah. I mean, we've certainly okay. repatriate. We certainly had people from conflict zones settle in Canada. Have we had what probably has happened in the past is we've had double dual citizens who right. were in some sort of situation where things got violent or there was a disaster, we brought them home. Like we, Canada felt responsible for the Canadians who are dual citizens who were in Lebanon, who faced you know violence or natural disaster. I forget which one that was a few years ago. There are other places where Canadians, again, dual citizens living abroad, who benefited from that second part of their identity to, co- to be rescued uh, when threatened. So those happened before, but I don't know of examples of Canadians going abroad as part of an insurgency against other folks mm-hmm. who then want to come home. And the insurgency is aimed at essentially Canadian interests, right? Right. So Okay. So I don't I don't still the big I question mark. It. Yeah. Right. We it's not it's unclear what's been done in the past. So the second thing that I, I just want to revisit from your previous statement is determining what their true intention was. You know, were they, were these family members brought over because they lacked agency? Did they, you know, believe in the cause? Like who would the courts determine that? Is there a threshold that has been set? Again, it just seems like it's so new. And, you know, how do we go about determining, you know, the the level of surveillance that's required for these people and for how long and, you know, can people, you know, fake sincerity? Like, it just seems like it's so complex to determine whether or not someone is either, you know, had, had a change of heart while they were there. Like, it just seems like it's very subjective and it doesn't seem like there's a easy way to determine whether or not they should be welcomed back or like the observation of surveillance that's required for them. It just, it seems like it's a lot more complicated than it may seem than just bringing them back and then. You yeah, know, it, it, it is complicated. It is obviously complicated. I And that's why I think that we need to have discretion. We just can't have a, a rule that says we can't bring back people who were part of a terrorist group because mm-hmm. there are these families. There are these kids that through no fault of their own, you know, these Canadian kids through no fault of their own ended up in a conflict zone. Yes. And then the question is about the other people. And mm-hmm. I think you know the ideal of a justice system, whether it's reality or not. The ideal of it is is that you can you know take seriously the various considerations, and then you 
make a decision based on the risks and the actions that were, you know, that, that they committed. Did they violate mm-hmm. the law? Which laws did they violate? How severe was the violation? What was their intent? You know, that's what juries and judges are for. Now, maybe they won't handle it well, but I think saying we can't bring these people back because they're a security risk is not the way to think about it. I don't think we should presume that these women and children are, you know, the most rabid, uh, well-trained terrorists that are clear threats to Canadian security. I think there's something less than that. And so therefore we have room to figure this out. It's very different to bring these people back than to bring somebody who was making bombs for ISIS, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, a particular interest for me is, you know, the well-being of the children, right? So just, again, my background in child development, you know, I hope there's someone that out there who's, you know, part of this engine of, you know, repatriating these folks back is, you know, having some mechanism to ensure the well-being of the children of, as, you know, from where they were, which on some accounts sound like horrific living conditions and this big transition back to Canada and everything that they're potentially going to be exposed to in terms of the justice system. We want to make sure that we have things in place to ensure that these children grow up to be okay. Yeah. I mean, this is where sort of my my interest in this area is, you know, like, wow, like that's, that's a lot of change for someone so young and we need to, to be cognizant of that as well during this whole process. Yeah. So just to have a lighter side to end this stuff, uh, what are you watching on TV these days? Are you, are you following any particular TV shows or movies that, that have you seen the Dungeons and Dragons movie? Have you been watching Did you see Shazam? Mm-hmm. Did you go out? Have you, uh, no, been keeping up I, with anything? You know, yeah, so I don't know if people are aware, but it was a Star Wars celebration this weekend. It was being live streamed on YouTube. Um, I spent most of the weekend, you know, at home, you know, doing this and that and had a Star Wars celebration streamed on YouTube. So we wow. saw lots of, you know, some interviews with some of the, the creators, some of the actors. You saw some of the new Lego coming out, which is very exciting. I'm a bit of a, a builder along with my kids. So yeah, very fully immersed in the Star Wars world right now. And you and I spoke briefly about the new season of Mandalorian. There's lots to look forward to. Um, no, haven't watched Dungeons and Dragons when my kids went to see it and came home with the thumbs up. How about yourself? Well, I was really excited by the Ahsoka Tano uh, trailer uh, that was featured at the Star Wars celebration. Mm-hmm. Um, so that 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 was uh, that's super cool. I did see the Shazam movie. It was okay. Not great, but it was fine. Seen Dungeons and Dragons with my wife this afternoon. So I'll have a report for you the next oh, time we chat. Enjoy. And I have been, <laughs> the latest thing I've been doing is I've been binging San Diego-based early 2000s detective shows. So I watched a lot of Veronica Mars. And then most recently, I just binged uh, Terriers, which was only on for one season, but was really, really good. And they kept on filming in places that I could recognize from grad school. So I really oh, that's fun. That piece of it. So uh, it's uh, it's on Disney Plus. Actually, both of those are on Disney Plus, I think. So I'd recommend Veronica Mars, just a fantastic teenager as a private detective. And then Terriers, mm-hmm. two, two scrubby 30s to 40-year-olds uh, with bad judgment guys who end up being embroiled in, in an investigation. So that that's my 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 suggestion. Well, I started watching Rabbit Hole, which is the new Kiefer Sutherland. Uh, It's pretty good. Again, just when you said, uh, you know, interesting to watch, you know, places that you recognized uh, Rabbit Hole was filmed in Toronto. So um, it's always nice to see some of those hometown places featured on the big screen. All right. Well, uh, we want to make sure that we introduce the next segment. We have uh, Senator Patterson, Senator Rebecca Patterson, 
who used to be Rear Admiral Patterson. She, uh, mm-hmm. in her last gig, worked at the Command for Professional Conduct and Culture and has a long history in the Canadian yes. Armed Forces. We had a really interesting conversation about both her previous work and and how she sees her role as a senator. I've been studying legislatures around the world and how they perceive their role in overseeing the armed forces. And so she and I got into it a little bit about what we think the, the role of the Senate should be in Canada in reviewing the military and what she plans to focus on. So uh, it's a really interesting interview. And so we're going to cut our, our time short a little bit so that way we can let that full interview play out. Lena, it's always a pleasure to talk to you. Uh, I hope you get a chance to Same see here. some of the latest pop culture. I just saw the the new Marvels uh, trailer for the fall that I think you're going to really enjoy. And be well and enjoy the spring now that it might almost be here. Quite possibly. Thanks so much, Steve. Looking forward to your interview. All right. Take care. Bye-bye. Well, welcome to the podcast, Senator Patterson. Are you getting used to that title yet? I am. I still don't look every time they say it, but uh, <laughs> I, cer- I certainly am. And uh, it's it's quite an honor to have been given this opportunity to serve Can- Canadians still. Well, this is a very different way to serve Canadians from your previous gig. So I guess I'll start with that. Why did you choose to become a senator? It's kind of an interesting question because, of course, I think it came at a very timely moment in my military career. I'm getting, or I was almost at 34 years of service. As you know, it's uh, it's interesting times in the Canadian Armed Forces, and I've been working in very high profile, quite high stress files since about 2018, maybe more than that, but in particular, mm-hmm. national level files since that time. And you always have to think about, and now what? Mm-hmm. And uh, it just was timely. And it was a conversation around uh, the holidays in 21 at the Christmas holidays in 21 because I do celebrate Christmas and I was uh, talking with some a group that kind of represents civil society on the women's side and work that we've done with them in the past on my defense champion for women's side and we were talking and we were talking about well there's vacancies in the senate for Ontario and I remember thinking to myself and why not <laughs> Since 2018, I'd appeared in front of both the House of Commons and the Senate on a number of occasions, either as frontbencher, backbencher, or note taker. And uh, I, I was always quite impressed with how the Senate approached things, because big P politics for someone who served for 34 years is truly apolitical. You know, it's quite a, a disconnect. So the Senate always, uh, while, you know, small P politicians, it felt like they really wanted to hear what we had to say. And I appreciated that. So therefore, opportunity. Opportunity and like any other Canadian, I went through the very labor-intensive process of applying, and I feel very fortunate mm-hmm. to have been selected. I I used to say it's uh, I was as likely to become a, a senator in Ottawa as I was an Ottawa senator. So we kind, <laughs> of, um, we kind of went from there. Well, one of the tricky things about the Canadian circumstance is the role of the Senate in the political system. Not elected, people aren't really sure what the powers of the Senate are. So. What do you think of as the role of the Senate in the Canadian political system and, and how you were going to fit into that? Yes, and I think that's a really good question. And I'm going to actually go at it from coming from the culture domain and looking at even how Canadian society is evolving and 
and Canadians wanting to have a better voice rather than having sort of that hierarchical structure where the person on top talks on your behalf. And when I look at the role of the Senate, a sober second thought is a fairly quaint concept, but what does it mean? And as I was looking at the role of the Senate in terms of uh, not being elected politicians, but being the ones who, as one of their roles, reviewing new bills as they come through for eventual legislation or or generating them themselves. And I looked at the composition of the Senate and I realized that it actually represented portions of Canadian society that may not have made it into the other place or mm-hmm. into the House of Commons. And I thought, you know what, as we move forward and hearing about talks of modernization of the Senate, whatever that meant at the time, I really believe that that's quite a valuable thing. So bringing in different views, whether you call it GBA+, because we are such a broad section of Canadians who sit in the Senate, or it is is just providing the non-partisan look at legislation as it comes through and providing a second level of research, study, and critique. So that's one thing the Senate does. It also creates a mechanism for giving voice to components of the population that don't have voice. And I know uh, we may talk a little bit later, so um, I'll see if the opportunity comes, like who am I and what the heck voice do you need after 34 years in the Canadian Armed Forces? But I also um, do appreciate that part of the work is also getting to Canadians and uh, giving them a chance to talk from a regional perspective. And even in my very short time in the Senate, I have learned a whole heck of a lot more about Canada. It's It's been very interesting. So I do believe that done correctly, and as we move forward, it is giving that second look at what's going on, giving more Canadians a chance to have a voice in how our country is governed and, and legislated. So that is sort of what I see as the Senate. Do we need to get better and get out there and have Canadians understand and help shape us more? Um, in Rebecca's personal opinion, the answer is yes. One of the strange things about the Senate is you're selected by a committee, essentially, who advises the prime minister. You're not selected by in a vote by Ontario, but you already mentioned that you are a senator from Ontario. Do you see yourself as representing Ontario? And who else do you see yourself as being the representative of? Yeah, I think that is a, is a really good question. And again, with the process change since I think it was 2016, there is the independent panel that looks at it. And I know Ontario hasn't pointed a provincial panel from what I understand. Other provinces have. So plus or minus Mm -hmm. provinces are given a chance to have a say as to who's going to represent them before they even make it to the prime minister's level. So do I represent Ontario? I do, actually. I'm not from anywhere. I grew up all over the place. I've you know, served coast to coast to coast internationally. I was born in England, but the closest I have to a home is Ontario and Ottawa in particular, understanding, you know, the challenges of being in the NCR. So yes, I do represent Ontario from that perspective. But then you ask me, who else do I represent? One thing I do know from 34 years of service, if I'm going to talk about people, is there are people who have no voice, and that is members of the Canadian Armed Forces and veterans. And when we think about the number of serving members and veterans in Canada, I think I saw one number, or I could see about 600,000 people. Well, that's almost as big as Ottawa. So most uh, huge population of the Canadian Armed Forces sits in Ontario on our big bases around here, whether it be Ottawa, whether it be Petawawa, whether it be Trenton, whether it be our reserve units, north, south, east, west in the province. So yes, I do think I represent Ontario. And I do think that uh, even within that Ontario construct, I can represent members of the Canadian Armed Forces and veterans who live here. But yet again, knowing that as society progresses is that there are serving members all over the country 
there are veterans all over the country and all over the world. And again, there's a lot of things that touch on defense, security, individual benefits, pensions, <laughs> of which there is no voice. And so uh, that is something as I move forward, I can see managing. Okay, well, that, that leads to all kinds of questions. First of all, I guess... I knew it. <laughs> well, I, I was going to assume that you're going to be on the uh, Standing Committee on National Defense. Is that uh, a good guess? I think eventually, this is something that I would like. I, I belong to the Canadian Senators Group, and we have a certain number of seats mm-hmm. uh, on these these groups. So as, as time goes by, I would like to. The great part about uh, being in the Senate is I can go to these committees whenever I like and mm-hmm. uh, get standing to ask questions. It's a great way to learn about the Senate. I'm a novice. I've got training wheels. I, I'm learning. So for the committees that have run so far, including the Veterans Committee, mm-hmm. I've certainly dropped in for certain witnesses and asked questions. You Usually through a women, peace and security, GBA plus lens mm-hmm. and a defense and security lens, like have these things been considered? So eventually I, I will get there. Right now, interestingly enough, is that I'm on uh, oceans and fisheries, which of course is, uh, while it is about fishing, it is about national security because it includes the Coast Guard. It includes the Arctic. So I'm quite happy to learn through that lens to start. And for those who don't know your background, you're a formal naval officer, but I believe your specialty was as in the medical field. Is that correct? Yeah. So I'm uh, I'm one of the purples, purple occupations. They call it that way because uh, the Canadian Armed Forces only has one health services mm-hmm. and it serves Army, Navy and Air Force. And uh, I wear a naval uniform through history and love of the ocean. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the majority of my career has been uh, in support of the Army in various leadership positions. So while healthcare is my background, it isn't that I'm so niche I have no idea about what goes on in the Canadian Armed Forces and defense security, foreign policy, etc. So, of course, uh, in order to effectively be a, a health services officer, you need to understand the context in which you are working. So, uh, And I also liked it. So that's the other issue. Well, it was just that as a former naval officer that put you on oceans and fisheries, I thought that was the, the, yeah. the, the, the connection. <laughs> well, you know, it, it certainly might be, but it's going to be a, a, an amazing learning experience, national shipbuilding, but that, that all hits water. Sure. And one of the discussions in the academic side of things is what attitudes or what perspectives do veterans bring to legislative committees and, and uh, oversight? And so there's two possibilities, or there's many possibilities, but the two sort of stereotypical possibilities are an officer joins the Senate or the House, depending on which country you're talking about, and then they become an advocate for that armed force. They don't really provide necessarily a lot of oversight, but a lot of cheerleading and a lot of protection. They seek to provi- you know, protect the military from the other civilians. Um, now, this is just stylized. I'm not saying what you're doing. Already. And the, mm-hmm. the flip side of that is the other stereotype is of an aggrieved individual who, you know, their, their military career is stunted somehow, or they have some bad experiences. And so then they have a very specific agenda where they serve on a legislative committee. So they may, they may not pay attention to the entire panoply of issues, but they'll have a few core issues that they spend a lot of time because those are the things they ran across when they were in the military. So I guess when you look at your role asking questions about the military and about veterans, do you see yourself as an advocate for the veterans and the people in the forces? Do you see yourself as an overseer of a troubled institution, given your last few years, you're playing a role, in, I believe it's CPCC, which has been spending a lot of time trying to fix is a wrong word, but adapt, modify 
uh, the the culture of the calf. You know, what is going to be your attitude going into this? What's going to be your focus, given all the things that you could be looking at? Mm-hmm. And as you know, like like an academic, you have to have a little bit of focus or you're just going to be all over the board. And so I think that that's quite important. So to start, I'm, I'm new to this, so I'm having a look forward. Uh, secondly, please understand that uh, I don't come at this as a harm person with a vendetta because uh, I know that's a very interesting concept, but I do understand what you're saying. And that is not me. But when I look at this, the lens I'm going to look at is, as I said, Defense Security Intelligent writ large as the kind of the umbrella under which my uh, experience, which is time limited and will expire for the minutia, which is where advocacy tends to come from. I'm going to do it through a women, peace and security lens. And why does that matter? Because it's about including all voices in defense and security decisions, legislation, etc., and you know it it's it's a UN piece, but we also know that having a woman's voice in non-traditional roles, including in legislation, that is it's very important that we have women in families and gender, but it's also really important that we have a woman's voice under defense, security, and intelligence. I, of course, will be on a continuous learning journey, but it will be the strategic picture through that WPS lens to make sure that it's have you thought of this? How does this matter? And then when I start kind of bringing it down a bit, when we talk about uh, members of the Canadian Armed Forces and veterans, it's how I think about questions and how I think about inserting on when it comes to studies that are more specific or legislation that's more specific. For example, it could be something such as uh, bills going through about federally appointed judges. I know you know where I'm going here. So my question is, have you considered judges in the Canadian Armed Forces. And uh, it's not going to be me talking about mini, mishi, mishi, minutia. But what these are is examples of areas that uh, is it a specific advocate. No, it's looking at the department as a whole and with the overall look at maintaining, supporting, bringing voice into defense and security with someone who has a little bit of experience, 34 years to be exact. Just a little bit. And so you Your last few years were on the culture change front. That is uh, fair to say? I also did Operation Honor. Please don't forget that. I started that in 2018. I then spent a year putting vaccines in arms as the commander and uh, DG in Canadian Forces Health Services. And then when CPCC was stood up, I moved there too. So it's been health is culture to be exact, but uh, those are my very specific titles. Sure. So we have had a lot of discussion the past couple of years about culture change. You were in the fray, and now you're going to be on the outside looking in. Yes. So I guess one of the questions is, is what are the things you saw that you would like to see changed in the in the culture change effort? While you're towards the top of the chain of command, you were not at the top of the chain of command. So that often means following orders that you don't want to follow. But that's you know the role of, of, of somebody in the chain of command. So how, how would you like to see the, the culture change effort either changed or, or where the energy should go? So I'm going to answer your question, target center. I'm going to go a little to the left here. So I think uh, first and foremost, the one thing is, is as as a very senior person with quite a bit of uh, experience in that domain, even though I wasn't the buck stops here, I felt very, very much a part of shaping where we went to go. And that's that kind of will shape my answer. So do I think we're on the right path right now? Because the answer is yes. We have been changing since I joined way back in 89. Do you know, I actually joined the Canadian Armed Forces January 1989. And what happened then? That's when women had to be accepted into all occupations minus submarines. So my whole career, I can look back and I was in Somalia and I testified at the Somali inquiry. So I have, have I seen change 
underway all the time? The answer is yes. So right now, what do we need to change? Maybe you need to stop talking about change. What do we need to reevaluate to adjust Mm -hmm. and go forward with? See how I'm hitting slightly left of what you asked? So I look at our efforts now informed by the people who serve, by the people who've been harmed and are no longer serving, by academics, right? By all these different people to looking at a complex and wicked problem. So in modernizing the Canadian Armed Forces, where do we need to go now? We have to have a little patience. I'd like to point out any institution in Canada that has changed. I'd like to point out any institution in Canada that has put as much effort into this as Canadian Armed Forces. And I'm going to tell you, there aren't any. So is it perfect? Is it right? Well, the answer is we don't know. We have to have time to enroll it. So where would I put my efforts? And again, I'm I'm still fresh enough off. I actually officially retired on the 10th of January. So bracket my bias right up front is I do think we need to focus on first and foremost, like any change management on what is important to people, the people who are serving now, because ultimately we have to have an effective fighting force ready to serve. And whether you talk about internal things like inclusive leadership, which is an initiative that you'll get, oh, that's so woke. Would you stop? <laughs> there is nothing, not you, please. I don't know. No, 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 no. So I didn't mean to come across as respectful. No, 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 no. no, there, no. there is no law, no regulation, no rule that ever said we should be abusing each other. In Canada, not just the Canadian Armed Forces, but particularly in the Canadian Armed Forces and in international law. So helping people with respect with a growth mindset rather than right, wrong, you failed. Here's that, we used to call it, you know, pendulum in the drywall, that we build in an attitude that allows people to grow, to learn, to recover, to reintegrate. And through treating people right is, I think, one of the strongest initiatives we have. Is it the only initiative? Is it going to cause culture change? The answer is no, because complex and wicked problems well, just by the very nature, have multiple solutions. But if we think about culture in the Canadian Armed Forces as Canadians who have all the rights and privileges of every other Canadian out there, and it means that in your workspace, what you believe, what your attitude is in your heart, Mm -hmm. I don't get to control that. What I get to control is how you behave and the consequences of that behavior. So if you start with how to treat people well, life's a bell curve, most sit in the middle. They want to know how to treat people well, that... You keep doing it often enough and you see other people do it to you. Guess what? You're going to know you're going to shift that bell curve up. You're going to truly see the true heck no, I'm not doing this. People will fall out and people will feel empowered to to point that out. Is it the panacea to culture change? The answer is no. But I, I do believe that the work that's being done right now is really good. I think that trying to, I'm going to go into a growth mindset instead of automatically canceling people when they aren't perfect for 33 years. You can see you've just found one of my my bugaboos that where it makes sense to do so is that we work on growth, reintegration, rehabilitation, rehabilitation, maybe out of the Canadian Armed Forces when you transgress, by the way, but that we give you those tools so you can move forward, you're going to be the most powerful agents of change. So I actually like the work that's being moving forward on trying to do coaching and uh, helping leaders in the Canadian Armed Forces and the public service, but I want to focus on the Canadian Armed Forces here, I create those right environments and make people feel valued. So that that's one thing I do think is going well. I think that we are still going to need to come to grips with how we link institutional efforts for culture change 
to operational effect. Now, I'm going to go back to my comment is as a Canadian citizen who has not been incarcerated in the Canadian Armed Forces, because my fundamental assumption is you're bad until proven otherwise, there's my next bias, is that we actually have to believe that what we are doing, when I ask you to fundamentally change how you think, because that's what we're hoping, and behave, is that it has something that has an operational effect. As a Canadian citizen, I have a right to do that. I think the work needs to be done to close that delta, two halves of the brain, a little bit in the middle, corpus callosum, is to truly be able to translate, I'm going to use how we treat people, to our strategic effect. Because at the end of the day, we are the group, they are the group, pardon me, I forget who I work for, (laughs) they are the group that uh, manages violence on behalf of Canada. They go places that other Canadians don't go with the potential of giving up their life. Doesn't matter if you work behind a desk. The fact you wear a uniform always puts that potential there. I think Ukraine has shown us that. It could be anybody, anytime. Back on topic. So when you're looking at how do we create that operational imperative to treat each other respectfully? And I think we have to close that gap. Certainly some of the thinking as we move forward is um, we have international obligations. And the one thing that we can say, if you're focusing on human behavior, is if I know how to treat you respectfully here, when I'm in that worst case scenario, that sharpest tip of the spear, when you may be trying to make a decision to pull the trigger or not, the hope is, is that the bias that you may have had for people who don't look like you will be gone, that you are making the best decision possible in that split second. It's about muscle memory. If I do it here, I treat my teammates well, then at the edge. So I think we have to figure out how to create that that value statement. The second part is we know that if you include more Canadians from all backgrounds, all stripes, not lowering standards, such a myth, got to bust that myth, meeting the standard required that doesn't have artificial barriers in because of who you are, then we're going to be far more effective in making that split second decision in the maybe once in a career that you have to make those sharp decisions. So going back, I'm using a very specific thread there, but we need to create that value statement as to why are we doing this? Then my last point is to focus on human behavior. What can we do better? We're very good at uh, policy process, rules and regulations. I think one thing that we do need to do is we need to bring in behavioral science in the truest sense. Why do people change? What is it that makes people change? And this may, especially on the academic front, create a lot of chaos. But if you cannot create the value statement for the individual to change their behavior, then they're not going to change the behavior. So how do we build into all the work being done in culture with a growth mindset? How do we build in the human behavioral component? And how do we motivate people? And again, if I use my good military terminology at the end of the day, if you take people out, we don't have a Canadian Armed Forces center of gravity. And so therefore, I know it's more it's more complex than that, but I was simplifying for a fact. So therefore, trying to create that value statement as to why we're doing this, not only for individuals, but also for why we're doing this for the operational imperative, I think is work that needs to be done. I want to shift a little bit to a different a related area, okay. which is... One of the challenges for the for the military is they're they're supposed to be apolitical. You use the word apolitical. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're not supposed to be vocal. And a discussion that's occurred in the United States, but that hasn't really transferred here very much, is the question of, of the role of retired officers. Because there's a perception that retired officers speak for the military in ways the military can't. And so when people see retired officers speak, they may assume that this is what the CAF really thinks. So we had one example last fall 
who continues to be uncanceled despite his uh, best efforts to say that he's canceled. Uh, Masonov keeps on getting uh, columns in the National Post. And on the other hand, you as a, a senator now have a, a, a quite the platform to also speak. And so the the good news is that means there's this competing voices because I don't think that you're probably going to see eye to eye with the retired Lieutenant General on things. On the other hand, as you speak as a senator, you're not wearing two hats, but the old hat is still somewhere nearby. And so people are going to identify you Mm -hmm. uh, with that old hat. So the question is, how do you handle this responsibility of potentially being perceived as being the voice of the military when obviously people in the military have a a variety of views and retired people have a variety of views? How How do you see your role as a retired person and the challenge of potentially being seen as the voice of the military? I think that that is a brilliant question. And, uh, you know, I've, uh, my staff is probably scribbling that down. So bear with me here. I'm just going to have a, have a think about this. I do believe that it is, it is a large risk and I'm going to be, this is from my apolitical background, not making eye contact unless, you know, I absolutely am told I can with politicians. I cannot not be who I am, right? And where I was and what my experience is. I think that it's going to be a very, very careful and obviously not overstepping my bounds as a senator, not reaching back into the Canadian Armed Forces, for example, but being very, very, very informed, providing caveats depending on what the subject is before I speak out. And there's a difference between speaking out, it should be done this way in the Canadian Armed Forces versus bringing that knowledge to bear into as I work within my realm. There can be very specific human individual issues, which again goes on that advocacy side, you say, and and then, you know, I have the ability to do the exploration. But when you're talking about, I speak on behalf of the military, I think it will always be a challenge and something I'm very conscious of. But I'm actually going to provide you with a little bias. So as a woman, as a rear admiral, and not the sharp end of the stick as an other. I don't believe I'm going to have quite that same challenge, not because of what I say, but the perception that I'm speaking for the military. Well, she's just a supporter. She was a nurse. What does she know? Like I've lived that my whole career. I've, mm-hmm. I get that now. So whether that's a good thing or a bad thing, it's just a statement. It's not mm-hmm. a judgment. But secondly, I think your point about uh, not acting like I'm the voice of the military is absolutely critical or it will be a disservice to the military. And I'm going to go back to my statement. Your knowledge of what's going on expires rapidly. And that's about the day-to-day happenings within the Canadian Armed Forces, attitudes, what the soldiers, sailors, aviators, and purple people think. And I think it's a, a good warning for all upcoming retired officers. Well, I, I think you raise a really interesting issue here, which is who is seen as speaking for the military. And given the battle space, uh, the, the information battle space of this conversation. Yeah. Uh, you know, I'm all, often told that I have nothing, no reason, of, no justification for being in this conversation because I have no military experience. I can see, you know, I can see how you would get pushback because mm-hmm. the people having those attitudes also tend to have attitudes about gender, about occupation. Have you deployed? If you deployed, have you deployed? Uh, you know, outside the wire. You know, all these kinds of things to try to marginalize voices that they don't want to hear. I hadn't thought about, A, about the fact that your woman would lead to you being marginalized in that kind of that way, that you can't be seen as a voice of the military. But you're right, as a, as, as a woman and as a, as a nurse, you don't have the profile that some combat dude would have. So maybe you won't have the same risk as being seen speaking for the military. And so that's a challenge mm-hmm. because there are folks out there who 
do fit that category and don't seem to wear the responsibility the same way you do in terms of wondering about what it means to be speaking for the military. I spent 34 years being that person. Mm -hmm. And if you think about the existing culture, we have an other culture and it has intersections which go beyond gender, race, sexual orientation. It goes beyond what you do and the uniform that you wear. And it can be a superpower because what I can tell you is that one of those components of our culture is an originally hierarchical power-based structure that favors operators over others. Statement, not judgment, is that it actually allows others like myself who's trying to persuade, influence, convince those with the power to make decisions. You have to create those skills those skills to in order to do that and learn how to understand when, you know, if it's if it's raining in that you need to, that's okay. We're not evacuating and we may lose people and you go, okay. And so that ability to sort of be not in competition for promotion or position, truly seeing the strength and the value of those senior leaders who don't look or don't come from my occupation has been one of the things that I have learned in 34 years. And I think it will be something that I bring to the Senate. The other thing is, is my respect, my duty, my service to Canada is never to undercut the chief of defense staff or the minister, unless they are obviously flagrantly so bad that there's, and I just, I've not been there yet. And so I hope to bring that with me as well. And whether it be because of those factors I told you that I'm not seen as the voice of the military, I think that my voice would be more on the influence side. Well, yeah, Patterson, you know, the fact that I'm still Ms. <laughs> that female veteran, I'm trying to think of some of the social media comments that uh, just go, wow, okay, great, let's carry on with this. You talk about, about being sort of an other within the military. You're also an other within the Senate, which is that the average senator is not a woman. The average senator is certainly not a, somebody who's had 34 years in the armed forces. You've only been there for a few months. How have you fit in? How 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 is your starting worked out? What are the biggest surprises you had in your first uh, few months as senator? So you're right about my background, just so you know, is that there has only ever been one other woman veteran in the Senate, and she was uh, a World War II veteran. So I'm the first woman calf veteran. I, I just have to put a plug in here sure. because, uh, you know, we've had nurses in uniform since uh, the Northwest event, and it took until 2022 to get one in the Senate to represent uh, this side of the House. So I'm very uh, humbled by that. Very humbled. It's It feels like a huge responsibility. So there's the first one. Uh, one thing I have found is that what I really enjoy about the Senate is you do your business, but it's very collegial. I might have this perspective. I might have that perspective. But if I have a question about, you know, a bill on judges, I know that I can go to any other senator and ask questions and receive very good feedback, collegial feedback. So that's something that I was thrilled about. And that's what I'd hoped the second part is that the quality of the Canadians in the Senate gives me intense imposter syndrome. <laughs> they just, I'm like, oh, I know who you are, you know, and uh, knowing what their accomplishments are, are absolutely stunning. So that is one of my other observations and uh, their dedication and their, you know, uh, support to whatever it is that they're doing is, is amazing. So that's one of my other observations. It's a different type of pace if that makes sense. And it isn't because, oh, it's really slow. It's actually, it's pretty brutal. <laughs> you know, it, it it may not be like the Canadian Armed Forces, but a lot of the structure 
with the exception of uh, when you're working committee or in, mm-hmm. in the chamber is, is structured yourself, which is when you ask me, so what are you going to do while you're there? I got to figure that out. So there's that aspect. So the work is actually very busy, a lot busier than I thought. It just feels, as I look out my window right now, I can see two Canadian flags. And one of the things of my service that, uh, you know, I also have watched soldiers who've been so badly injured or even who've died and they see that Canadian flag or it drapes the coffin and they go, oh, even if it's the end, they're home. And I look now and I go, oh my goodness, that's what I represent. So there you go. That's what being in the Senate means to me. Why did you choose the Canadian Senators Group and what makes them different from the other factions or coalitions or whatever we call them? <laughs> Groups. Uh, Groups. We have we have one caucus, the Conservative Caucus uh, remained, and the other ones are, are groups. So I think it's kind of, it's going to be a little bit selfish here. I'm going to be really honest with you. So there was, it was quite a flurry of activity in terms of legislation and bills being passed when I, I first arrived in. And the debate is really robust in the chamber, hearing people speak. So it was looking at all the groups, everything they bring to the table. And with the CSG, a lot of it was about the size of the group, to be honest with you, knowing that if I wanted to eventually get on SEC-D, which is the Defense Committee and, and Veterans, I needed to be in a group where there was a chance I could do that. And they were very small numbers at the time. I also looked at the diversity of people within the group. You know, they come from all political backgrounds, as well as specialty, you know, um, areas, uh, backgrounds, they, to be honest with you, were very proactive right off the bat. And if you sit unaffiliated, you're out of the loop. And coming from 34 years in the Canadian Armed Forces, my mind couldn't handle it. So there you go. So that's where I went. And it's a wonderful, truly independent group. We vote all over the place. People are everywhere. And I really appreciate that. Great. Well, I have one homework assignment for you, which is okay. Standing by, which is to to explain this mystery to me. One of the challenges that the whole culture change effort has is of the forty eight recommendations that Arbor set out, a variety of them require new legislation, and it seems that that becomes an obstacle of its own. That it's really, really hard to legislate, and I have no idea why. Now that you're inside the building, I'd love to have you come back and tell us after you have some more time and experience, why is it so hard to get just get drafts of legislation written before it even gets to the House, before it gets to the Senate? And then how hard is it to get things through? Because our, our report came out last spring, and we haven't really seen any new efforts to, to legislate some of the implications of it. If you'd like me to add now. So I, I think that uh, it's very challenging for any of the external reports. I'm going to use two that are statutory. Auditor, I'm going to go from 2018. Uh, Auditor General and uh, what's been known as the FISH. Those are statutory requirements. And then you have the two externals, one by Madame Deschamps that I worked on extensively and uh, one by Madame Arbor, is that we just have to assume that that's the answer. It's a complex and wicked problem. So being able to sit there and look at them thematically, because there's great stuff in all of those, and come up with what legislative changes actually are required is, I do believe, part of where the department is right now. And then there is uh, moving it through. I think we should never forget that any legislation that goes through the pipe is in very stiff competition with everything else Canada does. Mm-hmm. It's it's a huge competitive. So it's how does it become? Uh, and again, this is not the Senate's generally our role, but how does it get prioritized? And so maybe that's that'll be the question. How do we impact on this change? So as a former 
member. I guess I have to say veteran now. I'm not quite used to that term. That's even harder <laughs> than senator. But I think that uh, moving forward, this is where collaboration with the other place is. This is something I can bring. How can we get these NDA challenges or these NDA changes to the table more quickly? How can I assist with that process? So it's actually a really good example. Fantastic. Well, I appreciate you taking time to talk to us about your new job and your old job. And I'm sure we're going to come back to you in a year or two or three when when things have settled down and you've, you've been uh, a fully armed and operational senator. And we look forward to having that conversation. Thanks again for your time, Senator Patterson. Thank you very much and all the best. Mm-hmm.